So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 21 this morning. We have much to do. I'm going to pray, and then we'll see how far we get. Is that fair? We'll just see how far we get. Um, There's lots left in Acts, so there's more weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have together this morning um, to read your word. We ask that you would use your word to transform our hearts, to transform our lives, to cultivate our soul, to reflect the character of your son. Uh, We ask this with confidence and expectation, knowing that you have said that when your word goes out, it does not return void. That your word, as Paul has said, is the only thing, your word of grace is the only thing capable of strengthening and building us up, of cultivating our souls. So we ask, Lord, in the time that we have, that you would do what only you could do to cultivate our soul, to reflect the character of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Heroism is the lost chord, the missing note of present day Christianity. Every true soldier is a hero. A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. Go ahead and hold that image in your mind. A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. Who has not been stirred to scorn and mirth at the very thought of a chocolate soldier? In peacetime, true soldiers are captive lions, fretting in their cages. War gives them their liberty and sends them like boys bounding out of the school to obtain their heart's desire or perish in the attempt. Battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a stooping asthmatic. War makes a man whole again. It gives him the heart, the strength, and the vigor of a hero. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ and a hero par excellence. Braver than the bravest, scorning the soft seductions of peace and her often repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his bosom's closest friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting at the smell of fire. Sweet they might be, bonbons and lollipops, living their lives on a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper here to preserve his dear and delicate little constitution. Now that wasn't Matt Bristol. Though those that you those of you who know him wouldn't be surprised if he did say something like that. That was actually a man named C.T. Studd. Uh, C.T. Studd, amongst being the owner of the greatest missionary name in all of history, Studd. I'm serious, I don't make this stuff up. Besides being named C.T. Studd, uh, he was also known in his time as the world's best cricket player. So just imagine being the best athlete in the world and introducing yourself to people. What was your name, sir? Stud. You you can just call me Stud. And if that wasn't enough, he was born into a very wealthy English family. Um, He was the epitome of what history would call the fine Victorian English gentleman. He had everything at his disposal. Educated at Eton College, best cricket player, best athlete of that sport in the world at the time. All of the riches and opportunity at his fingertips that you could ever imagine. But in his teen years, he was converted to Christ by his father, who was converted at a D.L. Moody evangelism crusade. And in his young adult years, just as his heart had been captured by the thrill of his ability and the thrill of the game of cricket, God captured his heart for the nation of China and for the people of China. And so looking at his education, looking at his opportunity, looking at his ability, looking at the doors wide open to him through his gifts in sport and his opportunity with finances, what did C.T. Studd do? He got married, married, forsook his inheritance, and took his new wife to China. 
And there he and his wife began to do work on the nation of China, preaching the gospel and seeing churches planted. Now that did not go over so well with much of his family and many of his friends that were in England. So when C.T. and his wife returned, people were happy, but that happiness didn't last long because he began to feel that God was compelling him and convicting him to go and to reach the peoples in India. And so as his family and as his friends would try to hold on to him and and show him what lied ahead of him here, if he would just stay in England, all the opportunity and the ways that his gifts could be used, he and his wife prayed. And just as they had done earlier, they left their family and their friends and all of their opportunity in England, and they went to India. And there in India, they began to preach the gospel and plant churches. And after a period of time, they returned back to England. His wife was not doing well physically, and they had come back home. And while they were back home, another burden had grown in his heart. This time, he felt like God was convicting him and compelling him to go and to preach the gospel and to serve the peoples in Africa. But his wife couldn't go with him. But far from holding him back from what she felt God had called him to do, she sent him along, much to the disagreement and much to the consternation of his family, of his friends, and and even his doctor. See, by this time, C.T. was in his upper 50s, early 60s, and his health was failing too. And everybody looked around and said, you don't have to do this. Why do you go do this? Just stay here. Serve us here. You're, you're not doing well. Your, your family needs you. Your friends need you. you. You still have all this opportunity. And this is what he said. He said, God has called me to go, and I've decided to go. And I will blaze the trail so that my grave may become a stepping stone so that younger men may follow. And his work in China and his work in India and his work in Africa along with his wife who became one of the greatest speakers on the mission of the cause of, of missions at that time of gospel church planting around the world. She became one of the greatest speakers on the cause of mission in the continent in the UK during this period of time while he was in Africa. God used their ministry together as a family to begin a missions church planting agency that continues today to still plant churches throughout Asia, throughout India, throughout Africa and now in in South America. And before he died, he he wrote this. Too long, too long have we been waiting for someone else to begin. The time of waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. Should such men as we fear before the world, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God We will venture our all for him, and we will live, and we will die for him, and we will do it with his joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than living our lives trusting in man. And when we come to this position, we see that the battle is already won, and the end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a majestic and masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. That was C.T. Studd. And this morning I want to rephrase something he said there towards the end as a question for us. Will we dare to trust our God? Will we venture our all for him? Will we live and will we die for him? And will we do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts? Will we a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than living our days here on earth trusting in man? Will we be obedient to the mission and purposes of God? regardless of what price it might cost us to pay? Will we, will we be willing to be obedient to the purposes of God, even if it costs us our reputation, even if it costs us the understanding of loved ones and friends, even if at times it costs us our freedoms in the gospel? And ultimately, will we be obedient to the purpose and cause of Christ in our life, even if it costs us our comfort and our security? Because it may very well cost us those things. 
obedience to the purposes of Christ in our day, in our lives, may very well cost us those things. In Acts chapter 21, it's precisely what it cost the Apostle Paul. Let's, let's begin reading. Let's take a look here. Just to remind you, the Apostle Paul, he's on his third missionary journey. He's already been in Corinth. He's already been in Ephesus. He's already wrote in the, written the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman church, telling them that he's on his way to see them to set up a missionary base so that he can reach the uttermost parts of the earth or Spain at that time, but he has to get to Jerusalem first. You see, he's been diligently taking up a collection from all the Gentile churches for the church in Jerusalem because there had been a famine predicted that would come and the Apostle Paul saw this as a unique opportunity to produce a solidarity and a unity between the Gentile churches and the Jewish church in Jerusalem as we've already seen there's tension as the gospel has gone forward and, and began to plant churches in these Gentile nations. So the Apostle Paul wanted to show this particular unity in the gospel and so he had taken up a collection from the Gentile churches to give to the Jewish church in Jerusalem just to show this unity and he's burdened to get there. He wants to get there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost to deliver this offering. One, I think possibly, because at that time, you know, all of the Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals, and he knew he could preach. I mean, he knew if he timed it just right and he got there during Pentecost, the city would be teeming with thousands of people, and he'd have opportunity to preach the gospel and see more people get saved. And so he's burdened to get to Jerusalem. And so he's taking this little trip uh, on his way to Jerusalem. And we've been watching his journey as he's been going there. But he's taking this journey. And we get to Acts chapter 21. And we'll start in verse 1. And I'm going to read and and talk. And we'll see how far we get. And when we had parted from them, and we set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and we landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. He was on like a, a coasting vessel, a, a ship that would stay kind of close to the edge of the land, and it would usually sail by day and, and port by night to avoid the, the winds and the storms at night. So he's taking these little one-day journeys on his way down to ultimately, we'll see in a minute, Caesarea, which was a port city to get into Jerusalem. So he's just stopping along the way. And now he's at, at Tyre. And the ship that he was on was going to dump its stuff. Verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, so he's stopping because the ship's going to unload, and the first thing he does is he goes to look for the disciples, the other believers. We went to look for them, and we found them, and we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there had ended, we departed and we went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So they're entire, just north of Jerusalem, so he's on schedule because he stayed for seven days. So he's burdened to get there, but he's got a buffer there, so he's going to stay for seven days. And they go and find the disciples and the fellow believers, and, and the Apostle Paul for sure tells them what he's doing, how he's taking this collection, how he's going to Jerusalem, what his hopes are there for unity, and what his hopes are there for preaching the gospel to the Jews who are going to come to celebrate. And instead of getting encouraged by the church, and instead of finding that encouragement and that solidarity and that way to go, Paul, let's pray for you, Paul. Maybe can I go with you, Paul? I want to preach the gospel to the Jews, Paul. Let me go with you, Paul. What does he get? What happens? The church looks at him, verse four. And through the Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now that's a problem because in Acts chapter 19, Paul said the Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was compelling him to get to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was revealing to Paul, he even said that when he got to Jerusalem, he was probably going to suffer. And so we got a problem here because the church is saying through the Holy Spirit, don't go, suffering is awaiting you. And the Apostle Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit is telling me to go, suffering is awaiting. And what you've got happening here is the Holy Spirit compelling people to tell the Apostle Paul what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And you've got regular human people taking that and trying to make application of that. And in their desire for the Apostle Paul and their love for the Apostle Paul, they're understanding what the Spirit is compelling them that he's going to suffer when he gets there. And they're saying, then don't go. If you go, you're going to suffer. The Holy Spirit says, hardship awaits you, so don't go. So you've got the Holy Spirit saying that hardship awaits, and then you've got the people interpreting that saying, then don't go. That's just the first time it happens. It's going to happen to Paul again. Discomfort, difficulty, trial, to the church means don't do it. Let's see what happens. Verse 7. He said, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. 
And we greeted the brothers and we stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and we came to Caesarea. Caesarea is the port city for Jerusalem. So when you land there, you can go inland into Jerusalem. We got to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So this is actually kind of neat. A little, a little aside here. This is kind of neat. We haven't really heard from Philip uh, since, since earlier in the book of Acts. It's about 20 years later since we heard his story of how through persecution he left and he began to preach and a revival busted up in Samaria out of his preaching and then the Holy Spirit teleported him down to that Ethiopian eunuch where he found him reading the scroll of Isaiah and he began to preach to him and he got saved. And since then we haven't heard of Philip, but evidently Philip has landed in Caesarea and he's had a family and he's got daughters and and those daughters have been saved and the Holy Spirit has gifted them to prophesy. And so in this little moment, it's kind of neat. If you just step back and look, you've got at the time of, of Philip scattering and preaching in Samaria and, and, and preaching to that Ethiopian eunuch, you had Saul, who was the rabid Pharisee, who was hell-bent on destroying the church, who eventually was saved and rescued by Jesus himself, who became Paul, the great missionary on these journeys. And now together, here they are at Philip's house with his family, breaking bread together and spending time together. It's actually pretty cool that Paul is now here with Philip and there's no animosity, there's no bitterness. You know, Stephen was probably Philip's buddy and Paul was standing there collecting the coats while they stoned him to death, but here they are. And now Philip's daughters are prophesying. So I think it's just kind of cool. But verse 10, let's keep going. So while we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now that shouldn't be unfamiliar to you either. It was Agabus in chapter 11 who prophesied that a famine was going to come into Jerusalem. So this whole idea of the apostle Paul is to make a collection for the church to, from the Gentiles to help the church in Jerusalem who was going to suffer a famine and, and hardship, it came from this guy Agabus. So Paul is actually taking the word of Agabus from the Holy Spirit and he is now partly then being compelled to do what he's doing because of this. So he trusts Agabus and here comes Agabus and Interesting name, I kind of like, but never mind. Um, And so verse 11, and coming to us, just picture this, and we're reading all these verses because I want you to see this. Now, picture this. He's there with Philip, and he's there with Philip's daughters. He's there with the believers, and here comes Agabus, and everybody knows Agabus. He's a prophet, and he's been around. We've heard of him. So here he comes, and, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt. So he came up to Paul, and he took the apostle Paul's belt off of him. He took his belt. And he bound his own feet and hands, and he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So you got this prophet, and he's not necessarily crazy and wild like John the Baptist, but maybe he is, and he he comes up to the Apostle Paul, and he takes his belt, and he binds himself up, and you can imagine with all the pomp and circumstance of a prophet who, who at times would be dramatic with his prophecies, which is not uncommon. Isaiah walked around naked to show the people how God would strip them of their inheritance. That's not uncommon. The prophets were bound to do this. Ezekiel did strange things as well, and so did Jeremiah. So Agabus comes and takes his belt and ties him up and says, this is what's going to happen to you. Whoever owns this belt, this is what the Jews are going to do to you when you show up in Jerusalem. And look at verse 12. When who heard this? When we heard this. Who's writing this book? Luke. Luke's now including himself in this. When we, the church, when we, the disciples, heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. All of us now heard the Holy Spirit has said, he's used his people to say, if you go there, this is what's going to happen. Discomfort, trial, suffering. This is what's going to happen. Therefore, don't go. Hard times, don't do it. That's what the church is saying. The Apostle Paul, verse 13. See if you just hear early echoes of, of C.T. Studd in this. I mean, you just, you just kind of wonder. C.T. was a man of his Bible. See if you just hear echoes. The Apostle Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we, Luke still got himself in here, the church, ceased. And we said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And let me ask you this. Is it possible to be completely obedient to the mission of Christ regardless of the price that you have to pay 
and yet have the church try to stop you? Now, that's not my question. Best sermon I've probably ever heard preached on Acts chapter 21 was preached by a guy named David Platt. And the title of the sermon was A Mission That Only the Church Can Stop. And this was his central question. Is it possible to be completely obedient to the mission and the purposes of God, regardless of the price that you have to pay, and yet have the church try to stop you along the way? And his answer in his sermon, which I would commend you to go and listen to, was absolutely that, in, in essence, is the story of the scriptures from the very beginning. From the time in which God looked at Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, I am going to bless you. You are going to have descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. And through them, I will bless the nations. I am going to bless you. And through you, I'll be a blessing to the nations. This is what God had said in the very beginning. Here's why what's going to happen to you is going to happen, Abraham. Here's why the favor and the blessing of God is going to come to you so that you will be a blessing. As you enjoy God, as the depth of your enjoyment of God and who he is for you continues to grow, that will compel you to engage in the purpose for which his blessing came in the first place. Enjoying God, engaging in his purpose. As you enjoy God, you'll be compelled to engage in what he's called you to do. I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. But the story in the Old Testament over and over is that God's people chose their own way and chose to allow the blessing of God to terminate on themselves. They chose to allow the blessing of God to begin to be damned up in their own life, to to terminate on themselves. And as a result of their selfishness, The nations were not seeing and experiencing the goodness and the glory of God, the grace and the mercy of God. The purposes for which God had blessed them in the beginning were not bearing fruit in the nations. And so God sent men like Ezekiel, who we read last week, who pronounced woe on the shepherds of Israel. I like Ezekiel. God used Ezekiel in this time. Ezekiel 36, I'll just read you a sneak peek. God used Ezekiel to say to the house of Israel, to the church. Thus says the Lord, it's not for your sake, house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It's not for your sake that I'm about to do what I'm going to do. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. You've done the very opposite of the thing I called you to do. The very reason why I blessed you. You've done the opposite. You've profaned my name among the nations. And now through you, the nations are not seeing my glory and knowing my greatness. Verse 23 is what he says. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares God. When through you, because he's not going to leave them alone, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is God saying, when I bless you, church, it is not for your sake. I am not blessing you for your sake so that it terminates on you, but so that the nations, so that the world around you, so that the peoples around you may know that I'm God and may know that I'm holy and may know that I am righteous and may know that I am sufficient. That's why I do what I do. And in the New Testament, God brings this promise to a fulfillment when he sends his son to earth to live the life that we were created to live and to die to pay the price for the life that we chose to live instead, to pay the price for the life of terminating the blessing of God on ourselves, to pay the price that we deserved for profaning God's name before the nations, for not sufficiently enjoying God for who he really was. And God accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place and raised him from the dead where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And, And when the writers began to record the life and ministry of Jesus, The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, in particular, ends his gospel this way. Just to show the continuation, just to show show that God's purposes didn't stop there, even with Jesus. They carried on. The end of his gospel in Luke 24, Luke says this. Then Jesus opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name where? To the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
And he said, you're my witnesses to these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father to you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power on high. That's how Luke ended his gospel, his biography of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus in volume one of his writings. And in volume two, the book of Acts, he picks right up where he ended just to show the continuity of what God had started in the beginning, how he had fulfilled in Jesus and what he was continuing on in his purposes for his people and his purposes for the nations. And in Acts chapter one, verse seven, he says this. This is Jesus speaking. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. This is what we've talked about for this entire series. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The continuity of the purpose of God from the very beginning is continuing through the life and ministry of the church in the book of Acts and the life and the ministry in the church today. But even in the book of Acts, you see the church still wanting the blessing of God to terminate upon itself. I mean, just six chapters into the book of Acts, where is the gospel? It's still in Jerusalem. Jesus has said, through you, my witnesses, you're going to bear witness to who I am and what I have done from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Six chapters in, it's still in Jerusalem. The church is still allowed the gospel, the good news of God, and the blessing of God to terminate on itself. So God has to use a persecution to scatter the church. It's not till the martyrdom of Stephen that the gospel actually begins to go forward to the nations. And we begin to see that take place in in Samaria and the Gentile territories of Judea and then onwards now through Paul's journeys to the ends of the earth. But even when that begins to take shape in Acts chapters 10 and 11, you see the church seeing the gospel do the very thing that God promised it would do through them and going, hmm, what do we do with that? Is it okay that these people are getting saved? I mean, the gospel's going, these Gentiles are getting saved, but they're not like me. Should we let them in? And what you actually see in the middle of the book of Acts, around Acts chapters 10 and 11, is actually the church against the nations. You actually see the church standing in opposition to the nations going, I don't know if I can let you in. I don't actually know if I can, you can be a part of this. They're, they're taking that blessing of God and continuing to try to allow it to terminate on themselves. And so you see the councils begin to develop and the church and God's grace and a great victory for the gospel and deciding that, that no, this is we're, the gospel is the single thing that unites God's people and you don't need to become a, a Jew. You don't need to practice the Jewish traditions and laws to become a part of the church. And you see him write that down and begin to send that letter through Paul and the other missionaries to all the, the Gentile churches. And what Platt said in his sermon as he began to carry on was that we have a mission that only the church itself can stop. And his refrain throughout his sermon was, but praise God, the church could not stop men like Paul. In Acts chapter 21, you see this very thing continuing on. Difficulty, trial, hardship awaits you, Paul. God's called you to go and do this, but it's not gonna be easy. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. It must not be from God if it's going to cost you something. You must be mishearing the Holy Spirit, Paul. Hardship awaits you. Why would God do that to you? I mean, why would God allow you to get arrested? Why would God allow you to suffer? Why would God allow bad things to happen to you, Paul? You must be mishearing. But praise God, the church could not stop the Apostle Paul. Obedience would cost him. Obedience to the purpose and missions of God in his life would cost him, just as it will cost you and I. Here in these verses, at best, it cost him his reputation. At best, it cost him understanding with his friends and the fellow church members because they couldn't get it. I mean, obviously, they, they didn't get it. There was something they weren't understanding. I mean, this was Paul doing these great things. Why would he go and do this? Even to today, scholars think that this is recorded in the Bible as an example of a tactical error on the part of the Apostle Paul. That it was a mistake. That Paul had misunderstood what God had wanted him to do. At best, obedience to what God had called him to do cost Paul amongst his friends, at least his under, their understanding and his reputation. That's not all. If you keep reading in the text, we could pick up and 
the middle, and you'll see that when the Apostle Paul arrives in Jerusalem, we won't take time to go through this in detail because I want to get towards the end. He arrives in Jerusalem, and he seeks out the disciples, and he seeks out the church, and he shows them the, the collection that he had gathered around the Gentile churches, and he delivers it. And, and Luke records that they welcomed him gladly and received him gladly, and they were excited about what he told them about what God was doing in the Gentile churches. So the church received him. They received the offering that he had wanted. They were excited about what he had done, and they turned around, and they looked at him and said, now here's something we're concerned about. There's brothers saying that you're telling not only Gentiles, which is okay, though we might want it differently, but you're telling Jews who have now been saved by the gospel that they no longer have to follow Jewish tradition and law, that you're doing away with Moses, and not just doing away with Moses, because we understand, Paul, that fulfilling the laws and the requirements of the Jewish tradition of Moses doesn't make us right before God, but you seem to be saying that a Jew shouldn't do it at all, that it would be bad for him to do it. Now, here's here's what we want you to do and, and there's this fun section and we'll go back and look at it another week maybe but at the end of their little speech to Paul they go and what should we do and the very next verse they say here's what you're going to do and they ask the apostle Paul to take a vow to take a Nazarite vow and to pay the price for four other men who were taking this Nazarite vow and they wanted the apostle Paul to take this vow which Paul had done earlier in Acts we've talked about it he, he did a Nazarite vow earlier in his travels they wanted him to pay the price for these men and to, to observe this vow as a way of showing the Jewish brothers in the church that he was not doing away with the, the laws of Moses and the, and, 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 the, and the traditions of the Jewish church for those who had come to faith in Christ that yes it did not make them right with God but they didn't have to do away with it. It was okay. And so what we see, and we can spend time later talking on it, I don't want to dwell on it this morning, is that sometimes even in obedience to the purpose and the mission of God, it's going to cost you your freedoms in the gospel. Did the Apostle Paul have to do it? No. Did he do it for the sake of unity in the church? Did he do it because of the conscience and the scruples of some of the other men in the church who, who were under misunderstanding what he was doing? And in his radical adherence to the freedom that he had in the gospel, a freedom that could here nor there, depending on what he did, would his radical adherence and not having to do it produce unity in the church or would it continue to produce division in the church? So in maturity and in humility, the Apostle Paul laid a freedom that he had down to not have to do these festivals, to not have to do these vows because they don't garner him any reputation or privilege before God, but he does them anyway for the sake of the conscience of the church. And there are times in the purpose and mission of God in your life that you're going to have to lay down the freedoms that you have in the gospel for the sake of the purpose of the gospel. You see Paul do it other times when he circumcises Timothy and doesn't circumcise Titus. There are times when freedoms have to be laid down for the sake of the gospel. It will cost you that, but I want to keep reading for the sake of our time. Look at verse 27. He's in Jerusalem. He's gotten where he's going. He's met with the brothers. Verse 27, it says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him. So some of these, some of these Jewish men who have been harassing Paul, possibly the same ones that have been harassing him along his journeys, who are now there in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, uh, they see him there and, and they take this opportunity to drum up charges on Paul and they, they lay hands on him and here's what they say. Men of Israel, help This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now in the middle of a great festival. For they had previously seen Trophimius, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, which is a huge no-no. Big, giant wall. Still pieces of it found by archaeologists today that separated the Gentiles from the Jews at the temple. And it was a defiling moment for a Gentile to pass that wall. In fact, they have now stones in four different languages, warnings on that wall that would basically be best translated in English, proceed at your own risk. It was a big deal. And so they're saying that Paul took this Gentile into the temple. And so they seized Paul. All the city was stirred up and they ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and once the gates were shut, just kind of picture this image. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. 
And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So Paul is being falsely accused of having defiled the temple. And the whole city is stirred up and they have now brought him outside the temple and they're beating him. And it took a Roman tribune to come down and stop the people from beating Paul. And in confusion and not understanding what's happening, he chains him up and he arrests him and he takes him into prison. The church has said, don't go. The Holy Spirit is telling us, trials and affliction await you. The man who owns this belt, this is what's going to happen. He's going to get bound up and chained by the Jews in Jerusalem. Therefore, don't go, Paul. Were they right? Are the critics and the scholars today right? Was this a tactical error on the Apostle Paul's part? Was he making a bad decision? Was he ignoring the warning of friends? I would say no. I would say the Apostle Paul knew exactly what he was getting into. Just one chapter before, in Acts chapter 20, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And in chapter 21, verse 13, when he was with the believers in Tyre, he said, I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was no tactical error on the Apostle Paul's part. He knew exactly what he was doing and what was awaiting for him. He had, by God's grace, to finish the race and obedience that God had laid out for him. Again, I hear my boy Stud, who wrote in that same sermon, difficulties and dangers and disease and death or division, they don't deter anybody but chocolate Christians from executing God's will. When someone says there's a line in the way, the real Christian promptly replies, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two besides to make it worth my while to actually go. It was no tactical error on the Apostle Paul's part. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was doing the very thing that his Savior had done before him. These last chapters of the book of Acts, what you're going to see in Acts 21 through Acts 28, they're written in a particular way to show a connection, to show a resemblance in a way of the ministry and the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. There's a connection between him and the Apostle Paul that Luke is trying to bring out. See, both Jesus and Paul set their face like flint to get to Jerusalem. Both were rejected by their people. Both were arrested without cause. Both were unjustly accused by false witnesses. Both were beaten. Both were subject of malicious plots of the church. Both were were taken away, and as they were taken away, the crowds cried out, away with them. Both were subjected to five trials. And we'll see in the end of the book of Acts, Paul will give five defenses for his life and for the gospel. Luke is not trying to say in any way that the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul is redemptive in the same way that Jesus is, but what he's trying to do is to paint a picture of a faithful follower of Christ, of one who was obedient to the purpose of God and the mission of God and the race that God has given him regardless of the price that it cost him. Just as Jesus obeyed the will of the Father and the purpose of the Father to the point of death, Paul is willing to suffer. Paul is willing to be imprisoned. Paul is willing to be bound up in chains. Paul is willing to die for the sake of the one who had died for him. He knew exactly what he was getting into and Luke is trying to show us the connection. He was supposed to go and he was supposed to be arrested. And if that's the case, then when we read this and we see this story and we try to understand this, we're meant by God to see Paul as an example of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ, obedient to the purposes and plans of God, regardless of the price that we have to pay. Just as Paul said to the church, be imitators of me as I follow Christ. Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem to suffer and even to die just as Jesus was calling him just as Jesus calls us today. And it may very well be that the most dangerous place for you is right where God wants you. It may very well be that the most dangerous place for you in your life here on this earth is the very place God wants you to be. 
church believers, church members, followers of Christ have known this for millions of years. Before anything that was ever created, God had purposed this. And today, millions, millions suffer all around the earth for their faith. I was trying to find the numbers and I couldn't get an exact number because I don't know where to actually find the the ones that I can trust most. But there were at least two million believers around the world who have already gathered together on Sunday where they are to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate the person and the work of Jesus. And they've sat in the dark. They've sat in places where under, under hiding They've listened for footsteps coming their way, wondering if this is going to be the last time they would ever gather together to celebrate the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But they didn't stop. It didn't keep them from actually doing it. I mean, what would have actually happened if Jesus had listened to the church on his way to Jerusalem? If Jesus had listened to his disciples on the way to Jerusalem where he would lay his life down in their place for their sins, that they might be reconciled to God himself. What if he had actually listened to Peter? There would be no substitutionary death. There would be no cross. There would be no atoning blood. There would be no resurrection from the dead. There would be no redemption from sin. There would be no adoption into the family of God. There would be no riches and promises of the gospel if he had listened to the ones who were with him. What if the apostle Paul had listened to the church? What if he had listened to them? Countless souls, not only then, but today, would have lived out their course on this earth, not knowing the grace and the mercy of God in the face of Christ, and lived out an eternity apart from God. If Paul had listened to the church. And not only that, countless thousands who God has used the story of the Apostle Paul to compel to giving their life regardless of the cost to see those who are far from God with no understanding of Christ brought to God through the gospel would have never gone. They would have never done it if Paul had listened to the church. No William Carey, no Jim Elliott, no David Livingston, no Adoniram Judson, no C.T. Studd, no years of Matt and Betty Bristol giving their lives regardless of the cost for the sake of those who've never heard the gospel if he had just listened to the church. So was he a fool? Was Paul a fool? Was C.T. Studd a fool? Was John Patton a fool who lost his wife and lost his children, lost seven of his 11 children? Having gone to a place to preach the gospel, was he a fool? Did he misunderstand? Did he not hear? Would God, really, would God really send him there to deal with that? Your answer depends 100% on your priorities. Your answer depends 100% on your priorities. Millions have followed in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, taken up their cross in obedience to the purpose and plans of God and gone to see the gospel planted, to see lives transformed and if we're going to do it if you're going to be obedient regardless of the price that you have to pay you're going to need to be motivated by the same thing the apostle Paul was motivated by I mean I can tell you story after story after story and I would do it to encourage you but you would hear it as guilt and this is not about guilt this is not about guilt if we are going to be obedient to the price of death, to the cost of our own life, for the purpose and plans of God, whatever he may have for you and whatever he may have for me, we have to be motivated by the same thing that motivated the Apostle Paul. And at root, what motivated Paul towards this type of radical obedience was a deep enjoyment in the person of God, in his majesty, in his magnificence, and in his grace. It was a deep enjoyment of God and the hope and the hope that at the end of his race, it would not be for naught, that he would spend eternity in the presence of this Savior. What motivated Paul was the enjoyment of God and the grace of the gospel and the promise that in the end, what he got was God. It wasn't a thick resume. It wasn't a lot of things to rattle off that he'd accomplished. It wasn't a great reputation. It wasn't a great name. He was willing to lay that thing down. 
He lost it with some of his friends who didn't understand what he was doing. He wasn't doing this for his namesake. He was doing it because when it was all said and done, he got God. He got eternity in the presence of the one who had been obedient to the will of the Father and given up his life for him. That's what motivated the Apostle Paul. I do not account my life as of any value or precious to myself, he said. Not just my breath and my blood and my bones and my body, anything about this life, I don't count as precious to myself. Not what I have or what I don't have, not my reputation or my name. I don't count it as precious if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the grace of God. If we're going to be obedient to the price of even death, we've got to be motivated by the same thing that motivated Paul. Whoever will lose his life for the sake of Christ will ultimately gain it. And in the end, he will get Jesus a weight of glory that surpasses all else. And I'll say this this morning as we wrap up. If you are not a follower of Christ, this is ultimately what the gospel offers. Eternity in the presence of the one who in obedience to God the Father laid his life down to redeem you back to himself. Jesus would call you to turn from your sin, to turn from your disregard towards him, to turn from your deep and empty satisfaction in the things that you place your hope in. He would call you to turn from them and to place your hope and your faith in him. The gospel of God's grace the apostle Paul was so zealous about that it so changed him was the news that God had sent his son to live the life that he was created to live, the one of joy and satisfaction in God. And then he willingly died to pay the price for the life that Paul lived instead, the life that you live instead, the one of self-satisfaction and rebellion and disregard towards God. And God accepted Jesus' sacrifice in Paul's place and in your place and raised him from the dead so that for those who place their hope and place their trust and place their faith and the person and work of Jesus. They are promised reconciliation with God, redemption by God and relationship with God now and for eternity. He is the one thing worth living and dying for. And so my question to you this morning would be, what are you willing to live and die for if it's not Jesus? Whatever you're hoping in to bring you this lasting joy and lasting satisfaction, this eternity beyond your life here now, If it's not Jesus, is it worth all the hope you put in it? Is it worth the effort to which you treasure it and protect it? You just have to think about that. If you are a follower of Christ, this vision, this this gospel, it is the only thing that has the power to loosen your grip on the things that will consistently tempt you to waste your life. It is the only thing that has the power to consistently weaken the grip in your heart towards the temptations that will cause you to waste your life. And when your eyes are fixed like the Apostle Paul's on Christ and on finishing your race and being in his presence for all of eternity, the pleasures of sin, the temptations of comfort, the things that would draw you away from a pure and sincere and radical obedience, they'll be weakened they'll be weakened. This was the motivation of the Apostle Paul that allowed him to obey the purpose and plans of God regardless of the price that he had to pay. And it's the same thing that has to motivate us if we're going to live a life like the Apostle Paul. Let me pray for us this morning and then we'll, we'll continue on. Lord, thank you for your grace and Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the Father. Thank you that you could not be deterred. Thank you that you were willing to not count your life or anything here as precious. But you were obedient to the Father and laying your life down for our sake. Lord, I ask that we would that we would treasure that deeply. And that we would be compelled by your mercy by your sacrifice and by your grace to run the race that you have given us, to run the race that you have called us to with passion, with zeal. 
and with confidence. We ask these things, Lord, for your glory and your namesake. Amen. Uh, For those of you that are new with us, it's our our habit to take about 60 seconds to just reflect, uh, to be silent, to pray, to to deal, and then we come back together and we celebrate uh, the good news and the grace of God through taking communion and singing songs of praise and thanksgiving. So take 60 seconds and then we'll come back. Just as he kind of started our time off for us, I'm going to let C.T. Studd take us to communion. And it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth my spirit and they all shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens and above and signs on the earth below and it shall be that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him of whom they have not heard? Must you stay, young man? Can you not go, young woman? Can you not go and tell them? Verily, truthfully, we are in the last the Laodicean stage of the lukewarm church. Will you be to Christ the partner of his throne or will you be an emetic? An emetic is a medicine that induces vomiting. Think Ipecac. Will you be an Ipecac? Will you be a militant or will you be a chocolate soldier? Will you fear or will you fight? Shall your brothers go to war and shall you sit? When he comes, shall you find faith on the earth? A thousand times you've admitted Christ's love, so amazing, so divine, that it demands your life, your soul, your all. Will you be a miser and withhold what honor demands of you? Will you give like Ananias and Sapphira, who pretending to give all, gave only a part? Possessing and enjoying the vineyard of the gospel, will you, like the husband, refuse the agreed rent? Will you fear death or devil or men? And will you not then fear shame? Some shall rise to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Shall we refuse to emulate the heroes of old or shall we accomplish the double fulfillment of the glorious worlds? All these being men of war came with a heart to make Jesus king over all the world. They were all mighty men of valor. He that was the least was equal to a hundred and the greatest to a thousand. They were not of a double heart. Their faces were like the faces of lions. They were as swift as the rose upon the mountains. Shall we not then reply, yours we are, Jesus, and on your side, God, so do to me. Come then, he says, let us restore the lost cord of Christianity. Let us restore a gospel heroism to the world and the crown of the world to Christ. Christ himself would ask you this question. Will you be a malingerer, a lazy man, or will you be a militant? To your knees and to your Bible. Decided once, do not hedge, time flies. Cease your insults to God, quit consulting flesh and blood, stop your lame and lying and cowardly excuses. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. How can I spend my best years of life living, in the, living for the honors of man when thousands of souls are perishing every day? This is the time together when we celebrate the gospel of Christ in a tangible way. We remember the body of Christ broken on our behalf and the blood of Christ poured out on our behalf. In just a second, we're all gonna stand and when you're ready, you'll come forward and you'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the juice and you'll have a chance to pray and to ask yourself these questions. At what price are you willing to pay for radical obedience to the mission and the purposes of God? So go ahead and stand and... The musicians will play, and when you're ready, you can come forward and take communion.